0: My title today is Remnant Sanctuary and Prophecy. That's a huge title, and I'm not dealing with all of those aspects in depth tonight, but I wanted to put those together because they're all connected. Um, they're all connected with our identity and our mission as Seventh-day Adventists. And so we, we, are, we wrestle with that today. Uh, just three weeks ago, I was in Hong Kong, and I had been there before 33 years earlier. Uh, A lot changed. The airport is a new location. The city has expanded greatly. I learned while I was there that there are more skyscrapers in Hong Kong than any other city in the world. I learned that there are more tourists going to Hong Kong than any other city in the world. In fact, twice as many go to Hong Kong then the next city that receives tourists, uh, the highest quota of tourists, 20 million, most of them from mainland China to do shopping and other things. I was also struck, again, by the vastness as I travel to large cities of the mission that we have been given as a church for this time. I don't know about you when you travel to large cities. Last weekend I was in Los Angeles, how you feel about that, or as you walk drive to work every morning down um, I-75 or I-24, but it seems to me that, that our task is great, and yet we have been given a task, and that task is important. By the way, I didn't take these pictures. I wasn't in a helicopter. Um, <laughs> People come to Hong Kong to shop. It's one of the wealthiest cities in the world. They call it the New York of Asia, perhaps with Singapore. I, I travel to New York every year, but I never have seen as many special cars as I did in Hong Kong in one week. It was quite incredible. But I wasn't there to see all of these things, or to shop, or do that. I was there to hold an evangelistic meeting at our Adventist Church, located a brand new, a brand new, I'm sorry, Adventist Hospital here that was built uh, just in 2016, 28-tower, 28-floor hospital um, in uh, Chunwan. We have a second hospital on Stubbs, on the famous Stubbs Road, which is where all the wealthy people want to have their address. As my wife and I were traveling back and forth uh, day by day, we were struck by the numbers of people. And this was a very typical scene. In the subway, a very sophisticated subway, people, as you notice in this scene, looking down. What do you think they were looking down at? Their smartphones, that's right. Young and old alike glued to their smartphones. We took other pictures down the train when it was a little bit more empty. All the way down the train, everybody, I mean almost everybody on their cell phone with the exception of one or two people. And it, it, it struck me that as we travel from place to place in today's global world that we live in, we're really connected as we've never been before. And the barriers that once were there are not quite the same as they once were before. We traveled to temples like this one, and we watched both Westerners and we watched local Chinese, Hong Kongese, as they like to call themselves. They want to distinguish themselves from China. They, uh, we watch them worshiping gods, praying before gods, bringing offerings of meat and bread and various things. We watch them um, kind of in not a biblical fashion, but kind of uh, casting lots to see what their fortune would be for the day and then leave and we saw this again and again we saw temples dedicated to buddha we saw the largest buddha supposedly in asia we had to take a cable car to get there and there it is on top of a mountain you could see it you can see it from miles and miles and miles away and we saw westerners as well as locals and others who were coming worshiping uh, here and bowing down before this metal artifact. It's challenging. It's challenging in a part of the world where we have so many people. 1.4 million billion people in the world are Chinese. If you add 40 million in Hong Kong and Taiwan and another 40 million, Outside of that territory, like the individuals that run China Kitchen here at Four Corners, you have even more individuals uh, around, another 40 million around the world. So 1.5 million, really, a billion, I'm sorry, individuals in the world. When our church was founded in the 1800s, around 1850 or so, 1865 to be exact, but in that transition from the 1940s and 50s, our world population was 1.2 billion. Notice how it has grown over the years and what the projection is for the future. Between 1927 and 1974, a period of about 50 years, our population, our world population doubled. From 1951, I'm sorry, to 1974 to 2025, it is estimated to double again. And we're not too far away from 2025, are we? And from the graph, you can see just this exponential rise, and we don't really know the territory there in in the light blue where, where it's heading, if it will continue its precipitous rise or whether it will eventually level off. I bring this up because of the daunting task that the mission that we have is. That mission is getting greater, not smaller. And yet, our mission remains the same, isn't it? And, um, and so, today as we think about that mission and think about this weekend, the special place that we have to reach a world for Christ as Christ is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, it is something to think about. I want to also mention that for many in our church, these distinctive doctrines don't have the same value, perhaps, that they did to our pioneers. And I'm referring to a recent study that was conducted by our own School of Religion faculty member and others within the department, together with the Archives and Statistics Department of the General Conference of three institutions, Southern Adventist University, uh, Oakwood University, and Pacific Union College from 2001 to 2012. And in this statistical study that looks at graduates who have left the university and are out for a few years, Um, It measures what their commitment is. This is called the Adventist Connection Study. What their connection is, first of all, with the Church, and secondly, what their commitment is to the Church and to its doctrines. And what you'll see here, of course, is a series of various uh, questions that have been asked about. But you'll look and you'll notice that at the bottom of this series of questions. God created the world at the very top has the highest number of individuals that agree with that, least number that disagree. The red is disagree. I'm sorry, no, the, 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 the um, purple is disagree. The red is still agree. Um, but as we go down the list, you notice that as we get down towards the bottom, notice that 1844 in the pre-advent judgment is third from the bottom. Marriage between those, with, between those with same beliefs is second. And the Adventist church is the last day, remnant church is the last. So for some reason there is becoming a, a larger disconnect with, with these uh, doctrines of the church and these ideas in the church. And I think, I think that perhaps is reflecting somewhat Uh, These are millennials, of course, but it's reflecting somewhat um, part of the, the issues we face with identity today. So that's why we're having this conference, to look at some of those fundamentals again and see where we are at and why these things are important. Since we're an educational institution, I thought it would be good to share this quote from Education, page 125 to 126, and it It struck me again, as a teacher, how important this aspect is, and I thought to myself, is this really the primary focus of my teaching and my classes here? The central theme of the Bible, the theme about which every other theme in the book clusters, is the redemption plan. The restoration in the human soul of the image of God. He who grasped this thought has before him an infinite field for study. He has the key to unlock for him the whole treasure house of God's word. The science of redemption is the science of all sciences. This is the highest study in which it is possible for men to engage, I think she would say women as well today, and no other study can, as no other study can, it will quicken the mind and uplift the spirit. The central theme is the redemption plan. In another place, she states that we will study the plan of redemption throughout all eternity and the mysteries thereof. In The Great Controversy, pages 488 and 49, she speaks specifically in a chapter about the sanctuary. This is what she says in the context again of this redemption plan. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. Notice it's a kind of a theme here that is developing. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the utmost importance that all, how many? All should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer. To everyone that asks of them, a reason of the hope that is in them. So in the list that we saw before, and earlier this year we focused on, we had a presentation on the state of the dead and spiritualism, but as we look at these last two aspects here, those aspects were very close and dear to our pioneers' hearts as they wrestled with the crisis of what happened in 1844 and as they as light dawned and as they began to understand the special meaning of what Christ was doing in the heavenly sanctuary and how important that was for the second coming. In Evangelism, page 222 and 223, we read this, and perhaps the pillars that we just saw there a moment ago is the pillars that she's talking about. These pillars of truth Stand firm as the eternal hills, unmoved by the efforts of men combined with those of Satan and his host. We can learn much and should be constantly searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so. God's people are now to have their eyes fixed on the heavenly sanctuary, where the final ministration of our great high priest in the work of the judgment is going forward, where he is interceding for his people. Now, I know that uh, our guest here this weekend, Dr. Davidson, loves to climb mountains. And it's something that I have enjoyed as well, although I haven't climbed as many as he has over the years. But one of the joys that I've had, and I know that he has had as well, uh, has been to climb in the Sinai Peninsula, the mountains surrounding. What might be one of, one of them is probably the mountain that Moses also climbed many years ago. And waiting there at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning for the sun to come up over those mountains in the Sinai Peninsula. It's an amazing experience. It's one you never forget. When you do it once, you want to do it again. And, and when the sun rises, it's, it's cold up there, even in the middle of July, it's freezing up there, but when that sun rises and it comes over the peaks, just the, the levels continue to go. Later on, it looks like this. God brought his people out of Egypt, and he brought them to the wilderness. He brought them to the grandiose mountains in order for them to understand how great he was, how immovable he was. And yet, he gave them something in the sanctuary that was also a little bit different than the mountains. How is this different than what I just showed you a moment ago? It's mountains, right? But it is a painting. And studies have shown, studies from the School of Medicine at Emory University have shown that our mental reaction to a painting is completely different than from just looking at a photograph of something, as beautiful as that photograph might be. Because we recognize somehow intrinsically in our minds that a painting requires skill and it requires a great deal of effort. And, and there's something that happens in the brain, partic- particularly in the frontal lobe area here, that, uh, that interacts with a painting in a very different way. The neurons and the synopsis, they, they just go crazy and there are all kinds of amazing things, responses that are evoked, that are different than a photograph. Participants who viewed these images and had their brains scanned using magnetic resonance imaging, the scientists were able to see these differences. Do you think God knew that at the beginning? I think he did. So he takes them out to nature, this beautiful nature. Yes, it's the desert, but it has its own beauty. And he takes them there, and he has them build a sanctuary. A sanctuary where he will dwell with them. A sanctuary that will be the center of their existence. The sanctuary that will draw all of them to its presence. That will provide illumination through the Shekinah glory at night. And from that same place a cloud of protection during the day and the heat of the day. Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9 says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So there was a pattern, a heavenly pattern, that, that God communicated to Moses and to others to... to to pattern things after. But he didn't just leave it there, because if even Moses, with all of his amazing education in Egypt, destined to be the next pharaoh of Egypt, even with all of that amazing uh, education, Moses probably would not have had the skills to build the tabernacle. And so another passage, some chapters later in Exodus 31, tells us how he accomplished that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Basilel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, in the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. Indeed, I have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ah Asim." Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you the tabernacle of meeting. This was a magnificent bit of architecture. Movable, but beautiful in its details. We don't have time to go into all of those tonight. But God provided this through his artistic artisans. And I, I may be wrong about this, but this is probably the first time ever in the Bible that we have an indication that someone is actually filled with the Holy Spirit or inspired to do something. Uh, we have Moses, of course, inspired to write, but these this is the first time the Bible really speaks about this inspiration aspect that is given to artists to make the sanctuary. So it must have been hugely important for the ancient Israelites and as a type for us today as well, for the future. Now, of course, that tabernacle moved from place to place, and uh, it moved many times. And uh, even when they arrived in the land of Canaan, it continued to move from time to time, from place to place. And it wasn't until David that there was a vision for building the temple, a permanent place. And that was placed in a very important place. It was placed right where Abraham had gone up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. And it was where David had earlier on been involved in threshing. And it was a very important spot that was chosen there in Jerusalem on the top of Mount Moriah. But it was more than that. I believe it was also very important in terms of its location, because if you look at this map and you look at the surrounding nations, these great empires of the ancient world, Egypt, who had le- which had lasted for, and been there for thousands of years, and, and Medo-Persia, and Assyria, and Elam, and Babylon, and the Hittites up in the north, and later on, uh, other cultures that would emerge in these areas. Notice, lo, notice how centrally Jerusalem is located. And, and for some of you, you may not realize this, but you might think, well what, well, what about this whole expanse here? Well, that's just desert. Not many people live in the Arabian Shield. Uh, it's not, not a very hospitable place to be, you have this, this land bridge right over there, which is Canaan. You have this land bridge that connects Egypt with the rest of the empires of the world. And anyone that wanted to connect with Egypt, and if Egypt wanted to connect with the other nations, all had to go through Jerusalem. All had to go through this, this corridor of this place. And God strategically called Abraham to that place. And he said, this is where I want to establish a great nation not necessarily just to be a great nation, but to be a light to other nations. So the tabernacle was, of course, in type, the plan of salvation. And, uh, and it gave this um, on a regular basis as people went and as they worshipped, they, they worshipped there. Um, and they of course, brought their sacrifices there. And, and, and day after day, week after week, this was the symbol of what would take place in the future. This is uh, hinted at in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 16, when God, after Solomon dedicates the temple, says something very profound. He says, Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears a tent under the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. What if Israel had remained faithful to the Lord? Would the sanctuary, would the temple still be there today? Well, in Patriarchs and Prophets, we have this statement Had Solomon continued to serve the Lord in humility, the entire region would have exerted a powerful influence, his entire reign, I'm sorry, would have exerted a powerful influence for good over the surrounding nations, nations that had been so favorably impressed by the reign of David, his father, and by the wise words and the magnificent works of the earlier years of his own reign. In another place, she says, yes, it would have remained there in perpetuity probably not used after the death of Christ, but it would still be there today. But of course, the temple was not for the temple itself. There are temples all over this world still today. There were temples all over the ancient world. This temple had a specific purpose, as the sanctuary had, to point forward to the great sacrifice that Jesus would make in the future. And Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, gives us, a glimpse of this when Paul writes, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. In class um, last week, I went through a whole series of things that had been coming to fullness just ready and ripe in the culture and in the climate and in the religious views. Ellen White goes through a whole list of these in Desire of Ages, and uh, it's very interesting that uh, the world was ready in that part of the world for Jesus to come. But of course, the prophecies had also pinpointed this as well. Nothing was by chance. Daniel chapter 9 had already been very clear as to when this would take place and what it, how it would take place, and so when the fullness of time had come, it had come, and Jesus came. Think about it, Jesus, everything that, for centuries, for millennia of time since Adam and Eve heard the great promise in Genesis three fifteen, finally the Messiah had come, and he had come to fulfill that which had pointed toward him all along, the work of the, heavenly, of the earthly sanctuary. Now where, if we look at uh, Christ's death on the cross, and if he was the Lamb of God, where would that have taken place? In the courtyard, right? The altar of burnt offering there. So when Jesus died on the cross, that's where, antitypically, that's where he, it would have been represented in the sanctuary. After his resurrection, he entered into heaven and was received by his father. He entered the most, the holy place, the holy place where the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense was. And uh, that's the antitypical thing. Most Christian churches have stayed there. And they focus on what happened in the courtyard. The death of Cro- the Christ and the cross. Um, some of them may also focus a bit on what's happening in the holy place. But when our pioneers experienced the Great Disappointment in 1844, their eyes were drawn back to the sanctuary. And their eyes were drawn to the most holy place and the antitypical Day of Atonement. Now I know these charts can be very intimidating, and we're not going to go through them through it today. But the reality is that in our understanding, as Seventh-day Adventists, that's where we find ourselves today, in this general ballpark. We are before the close of probation, but we are in this time period between 1844. And uh, yeah, we, the great Jacob's time of trouble hasn't started yet. The great time of trouble hasn't started yet. The seven last plagues haven't started yet. But uh, these are the things that we can expect in the future as we read in the book of Revelation, as we read in prophecy and so forth. And we have been given a very specific message. It's known as the three angels message. And that message begins this time period. Actually, just prior to this time period, as the Millerites and as the Advent movement was moving forward, Revelation 14, 6 through 7 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the springs of the and the springs of water the sea and the springs of water so the hour of his judgment this period of time when Jesus is in the most holy place and sometimes we think of judgment as something difficult to think about right Scary to think about. But as I was in these temples in China just a few days ago, watching people petitioning themselves, kneeling down face to the ground before these gods, I thought to myself, what a message of hope we have for them. What a message of Christ's grace that we have, that someone came into this world to pay the price for our sin. And who is the only one who is able to stand before his Father in our behalf and stand as our advocate, pleading in our behalf. As our high priest, let us draw near to God Isaiah needed that kind of picture, didn't he? I don't know if you remember, but in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we have an image of Isaiah. Ellen White tells us that he was in the courtyard of the temple when his eyes were opened, and suddenly he was able to see. And his eyes were opened, and he looked, and behold, he was gazing into the most holy place. And he says, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Then he sees seraphim singing one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. As Isaiah sees that, he's overcome by his own sinfulness, his own depravity, and he, as he crouches there, as the threshing, threshing floors are, are shaking in the, in the midst of that scene, one of the seraphs comes to him with a, with a burning coal from the altar, touches him on the lips, says, your sins are forgiven, your iniquity is taken away. And then he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall we send? And who shall go for us? And Isaiah does not hesitate, like Jeremiah did. He doesn't make five excuses like Moses did at the burning bush. He, well, the text doesn't say this, but I imagine him jumping to his feet and saying, here I am, send me. Do we need a, do we need a vision like Isaiah had again today? Of Christ. This time, Christ in the sanctuary with the Father." I was very moved when I was in Hong Kong a few days ago to hear the story of Abram LaRue again. On Sabbath, Bob and Audrey Falkenberg and my wife and I and Ron Clouzet, who used to be the Dean of the School of Religion here, we all went to visit the grave of Abram LaRue. Abram LaRue was a merchant marine for 50 years of his life. And after that, received a tract and received Bible studies and became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. He was so excited about the newfound truth. He was so excited about the sanctuary message. He was so excited about the Sabbath and the Jesus Christ that he never really understood or knew. He went to Hillsborough College some years later, now Pacific Union College, to get further training. And he became a literature evangelist. And and in his travels as a merchant marine, he had traveled the world. He had stopped all over the world. And finally, at one point, the Lord just impressed upon his heart, you need to go back. You need to go back to China. Well, it was... 1800s, late 1800s. And he didn't have the funds to go to China, so he wrote a letter to the general conference and he asked them whether they would send him to China. But he was 65 years old. And the general conference said, I'm sorry, you're too old to be sent as a missionary. We're not going to take that risk. Abram LaRue was undeterred. He felt the Lord had placed this call on his heart and he was going to go no matter what. And so he sold books, made enough money to get to Hawaii, where he sold more books, and made enough money for a ship to Hong Kong. And there he had tracts translated into Chinese and he began his literature evangelism work as the first Seventh-day Adventist missionary to China. Abram Larue labored there for 15 years. He went there in 1888. 15 years he labored. He did not see one single baptism. He didn't see one single soul one during most of those years, and then he was joined by two other families. And within one year of those two other families, and just a few months before his own death, he witnessed what you see here in this picture on the right-hand side, he witnessed the baptisms of eight individuals. The fruit of his labors and those that had come to accompany him and join him in the work. And he died rejoicing that eight had made the decision to follow Christ. Now, they were not all Chinese. As you can see, a number of them were sailors, like himself. But two of those sailors, heading back to Hawaii, I don't know exactly when, a year later or a few months later, gave Bible studies to two Japanese students. those Japanese students went back to Japan, and they started the work in Japan. And those Japanese students, in their English work and in their work in Japan, they had established a school there, they met a Korean gentleman who they gave Bible studies to, and that Korean gentleman went back to Korea and began the work in Korea. And so what Abraham LaRue never knew is that he spawned the work in three different countries in Asia. And today, the work is going on. As we stood around his grave a few Sabbaths ago, and as we thought about the sacrifice of this man who had a vision to do something for the Lord, I couldn't help but think, what is our vision today? Do we understand what Jesus is doing, what he has done for each one of us, and what he wants to do for everyone else living on this planet? who simply don't know. I had to put this next slide here, maybe it's a little cheeky, I don't know. I wasn't around during these days, my parents were, but the presenters this weekend both come from two institutions that used to be called something different. Andrews University used to be called Emanuel Missionary College, <sighs> It was established to train missionaries to take the word and the message to the world. And this school used to be called Southern Missionary College. That's, by the way, what the M actually stood for. Some people have heard other things around here, like matrimonial college. But the M for SMC stood for Southern Missionary College. And our purpose, our only purpose... Was to train teachers and pastors and missionaries to finish the work around the world. I don't know how many majors we have here now at Southern, but my prayer is that we still are training missionaries to change the world. Jesus is coming soon, He is completing His work in the heavenly sanctuary. We don't have a date when that work will be finished. We don't have a time when it will be done. But we know it must be very soon. Because 175 years ago this year, in 1844, he entered the most holy place. 175 years ago this year. If he was coming back soon, according to our pioneers then, Isn't he coming back sooner today? My prayer is that as we study this doctrine, as we study this great truth of Christ in our heavenly sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary, and his desire to tabernacle with us and to create, as Revelation 21 says, a place where he will dwell with us for eternity, where he will tabernacle with us for eternity, my prayer is that we will understand and we will recapture a vision of what that means for our future. May may there be more Abraham LaRouz sitting here today. May there be more Sarah LaRouz or, I don't know, thinking of some female names that will be willing to go out as missionaries as well. We just thank you for coming here this evening May God give you grace. We want to finish in time so that students can get to Vespers tonight. And uh, thank you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray tonight as we join you in the anthems of heaven, praising your name as the Sabbath begins and has already begun. We thank you for what you are doing for us what you have done for us in sending your Son, and that his work didn't end at the cross, but it continues today in a very special way, in a very unique way, to bring justice in a world that is filled with injustice, to bring mercy in a world that is filled with great tragedies. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a God who has both mercy and justice in one and that that is being fulfilled today in the heavenly sanctuary. Bless us in our time this week, this weekend, this Sabbath, as we continue to interact, as we continue to learn, as we continue to focus on what Jesus is doing for us because, Lord, we do want to come home and spend eternity with him. We want to see the real heavenly sanctuary one day. We want to commune and worship there with the hosts of people who have gone before us and those who are still waiting to hear the news. Help us to reach them, Lord. Give us the compassion that Jesus had. In his name we pray.